Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, a podcast produced weekly by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim, and today is, I believe, a Thursday, June 20th. Thank you, Maria. We've had a busy week in Muni's in public finance, and let's get started with our, our talented reporters and head of research. Simone, what do you have uh, for us today? So this week, Greg Clark, head of municipal research, and I will be talking about the major events in Puerto Rico. And when I say there were major events this week, I mean major. The oversight board and a subset of bondholders agreed to a restructuring of general obligation debt. And the saga of whether the oversight board is legitimately in power heated up. My apologies. That's Simone Barabo in our Florida location. All right, Maria Amante in New York, what do you have us for, for us today? There was a similarly exciting development with uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. They made a uh, one billion, or they reached a one billion dollar settlement with municipalities to cover damages associated with wildfires caused by the utilities' damaged equipment. And finally, from our windy city in Chicago, Caitlin Devitt, what's on your docket today? Hi, Young. Um, I'm going to be talking about a struggling affordable housing developer in Chicago that defaulted on its June bond payment and um, may be exploring a restructuring and or Chapter 11. Okay, thanks, Caitlin. So, Greg and Simone, tell us about the big events happening in Puerto Rico this past week. So we finally have the very first proposed restructuring of general obligation debt, which is huge. The oversight board agreed with about $3 billion worth of general or holders of $3 billion of general obligation bonds and geo-backed public buildings authority or PBA bondholders to significant cuts in outstanding debt. Puerto Rico has about $18 billion of this type of debt. They sold it as a common in, in the municipal market in the U.S. for infrastructure projects, but also because this is Puerto Rico, they used a lot of that money to close budget gaps. So now we have a deal, albeit a deal that probably has limited support. So this is a very tentative deal. To add a little bit of context, the GO restructuring, if it happens, will be the third such event since the Oversight Board came into power in September of 2016. The Government Development Bank for Puerto Rico, the GDB, restructured its debt in November 2018, and Puerto Rico's Sales Tax Financing Corporation, better known as COFINA by its, the Spanish acronym uh, of, its, of its name, did the same in February 19. Each restructuring resulted in a significant decrease in each borrower's liabilities. But it's also worth noting that this deal is much bigger than the GDB deal or even the COFINA deal. That's because it would result in the restructuring of not just the $18 billion in GOs and PBA debt, but an additional $16 billion in unsecured debt. Uh, Examples of this are vendor, contractor, and litigation claims as well as for residual claims for bondholders from less well-known entities in some ways as the Highways and Transportation Authority, the Infrastructure and Financing Authority, and the Employees Retirement System. So what more can you tell us about the proposed geo restructuring? So at this point, as I said before, it's important to highlight the word proposed. The deal doesn't have much support, far less than did similar plans for either COFINA or the GDB when their proposals were made public. 
The GEO plan, as it stands, has the support of less than 20% of bondholders. And the bondholders who support it are those who, as you might guess, have the most to gain from the deal. They're primarily hedge funds, which tend to buy bonds when prices are depressed, for example, after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in 2017. At the other end of the spectrum are bond insurance companies, which under their policies are required to pay holders of insured bonds in full. So it's no surprise that none of them are signed on to the deal. The Oversight Board's executive director, Natalie Jurasco, had a roundtable with reporters after unveiling the deal, and she acknowledged that it was far from a done deal. She pointed to the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, known as PREPA, Restructuring Support Agreement, which they're currently trying to get court approval for. She said that at first they got the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders on board, and that's all that they had. Then they kept negotiating until they got a shared guarantee, which is the second largest PREPA insurer, and a bunch of other bondholders are board, on board. So she described in terms of the GEO deal, this is the first step in a building process. My only rejoinder to, uh, to Mr. Resco would be that this one is more of an uphill climb. With PREPA, the Commonwealth was on board, and in this case, the Commonwealth itself has come out against the plan because it includes pension cuts for some retirees. Well, it sounds like as if approval of this plan by a sufficient number of stakeholders is far from being assured. That's exactly right. Um, one other major problem with the plan is that it treats holders of different bonds differently. Usually in these plans, investors who own the same types of bonds are offered the same terms under the proposed restructuring. But in this case, holders of GO bonds issued in 2012 and 2014 and of PBA bonds issued in 2012 would receive smaller payouts than other holders of GO and PBA debt. This disparate treatment is justified by the FOMB because earlier this year it proposed that the Commonwealth repudiate these bonds, in other words, that uh, the Commonwealth not pay on those bonds at all. So what are the proposed recoveries on the GEO and PBA bonds? Well, as Greg just said, that depends. It ranges from 23% to 73%, depending on a number of factors, including whether you have PBA bonds, which are primarily backed by government lease payments to government-owned buildings, whether these are legit leases or disguised financings to issue more geo debt as a subject of litigation, and also what year the debt payments were made. Now, Greg, you just said that the plan treats different holders differently. Juresco disagrees. Her argument is that the Oversight Board has challenged some of the later series of debt, arguing that they breached the debt ceiling and therefore don't have to be paid back. So if the courts ultimately find the bonds to be valid, the payout between the debt from different years will be the same. But bondholders of the challenge bonds have the opportunity now to agree to a payout that's lower than bonds whose validity isn't being challenged, but higher than zero, which is what they'll get if the court finds the bonds to be invalid. There's one other interesting point here. If the later bond series are found to be invalid, then other bonds will reap the rewards getting higher payouts. But not all of that money goes to other bondholders. The Commonwealth will keep a portion of it under this proposed agreement, which is interesting because there's some base level that the government needs for essential services. But in two years, they haven't defined what essential services are. 
So presumably, whatever happens with the challenge debt, the Commonwealth will still keep the amount of money they need for essential services. They're not going to fold up and go home. But if the debt is found to be invalid, the Commonwealth will have that money plus the share of money that doesn't go to legacy bondholders. All right. I guess they'll have some money for Christmas bonuses. Finally. Yeah. (laughs) So there were other developments this week with the oversight board's appointment as well? Yes, uh, thanks for mentioning that, Young. The, the other issue is that the Oversight Board may or may not be operational after July 15. Uh, so the uh, debt negotiations might all grind to a halt. The First Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the board members are federal officials, so they weren't appointed co- constitutionally, but it gave them at first 90 days and then 150 days to get President Trump and the Senate to appoint them properly. So that ends, as Greg just said, on July 15th. The Supreme Court is considering today, actually, so we're Thursday the 20th, if they're going to take up the case. So we should find out in the next few days if they'll hear the case, but that won't happen until the session starting in October. And in addition, the Oversight Board has asked for an extension beyond the July 15 deadline so the Supreme Court can hear the case before the board stops operating. The First Circuit Court has previously said no to similar requests from the board. In the uh, First Circuit's last order, they accused the board of appealing to the high court with no apparent sense of urgency. And at this point, it looks unlikely that the board will get a year-long extension to operate without being properly appointed. Right. And even if they are, the Supreme Court could invalidate all of their decisions that they've made in the interim, because it's not just the appeals court decision that the board was unconstitutionally appointed that's being appealed. It's also, and this is obviously by different parties, but it's also the fact that they allowed the board to continue operating, even though they say it's been unconstitutionally appointed. And I don't want to say it's a weird logic that they use, but it's kind of a weird logic they use. They said that the board could keep operating under the de facto officer's doctrine. And the de facto officer's doctrine is basically, if it looks like you're legitimately in power, you didn't, you didn't get there by a coup or anything, and no one's questioning your authority, then if at some later point you're found to have been put in power by illegitimate means, your prior decisions can stand. People relied on them, and overturning them does no one any good. But it's hard to see how this applies prospectively. So maybe that applied up until the appeals court's uh, February 15th decision. But at this point, creditors have clearly questioned the oversight board's power, right? There was a case at the district court level. There was a case that was decided by the appeals court on February 15th. And the First Circuit has agreed that these oversight board members did not get there by constitutional means. So how is it that they're still allowed to operate? Good question. So other than the geo negotiations, what would this affect? Let me let me say first, Young, that uh, I've learned a fair amount about law during uh, since since uh, Puerto Rico first defaulted, and most of what I learned has been kind of disillusioning. But uh, what will it affect everything? I mean, put aside the, uh, the board's role in, def- in developing and approving Puerto Rico's budgets. Uh, Puerto Rico would have no one to re- represent them in the bankruptcy, so that would be a real problem. And the oversight board, in asking for more time, of course there's going to be a parade of horribles when they do that, right, because they want more time. But they argued yesterday something interesting, that if they're no longer to operate, 
allowed to operate, bondholders may sue to get the stay lifted and get debt service payments to resume. And Puerto Rico right now is sitting on a lot of cash, so presumably they can make the payouts. But the Oversight Board is saying it would threaten irreparable damage to Puerto Rico's economy because the debt service is simply unaffordable. Well, with the board, that sort of begs the question. Can't just the president and the Senate just fix this by reappointing the current board under the normal process? You would think so. And President Trump has renominated the current board. But if you look at the timing of his nomination or renominations, they're playing a game with the process. The White House initially said in April that the president intended to nominate, uh, to renominate the current board. But the president didn't actually do it until this week. And in between, a couple of things happened. Uh, the major, uh, the, lar- the largest event was that uh, a labor union that represents workers at the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, which is, uh, the union is one of the groups that has challenged the oversight board's appointment, argued that the Supreme Court should not take the case because nominations, the renominations, made the case moot. This is not necessarily a strong argument, and there are larger implica- implications to this case. Right. Like, can bondholders sue the federal government for taking their property if the Oversight Board illegally diverts money away from them? And this isn't academic. This is exactly what employees' retirement system bondholders are trying to do in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. And it also speaks to how much power Congress has over the territories. If they're limited by the appointments clause, are they limited in other areas as well? And this has come up in other cases. Obviously, these are important issues to the federal government. But whatever the case, after the PREPA union's brief, the intention, quote-unquote, to renominate remained. But the nominations never actually happened until this week, when they were immediately used to argue that the First Circuit should allow the court more time to operate without being renominated. And to go back to Young's original question, let's say the Senate confirms these members today. You've still got two problems. The first is that even if they're reappointed, the appointments only last until the end of August, which is when their three-year term originally ended. So then you're in the same position you're in now with needing reappointments. The second is, let's say they can be reappointed as federal officials now. You've still got everything they did up until now, which may or may not be legitimate. But in some cases, you can't just have the board reaffirm what they've done before. Take the avoidance actions, for example. You have two years to bring avoidance actions in bankruptcy. Those are the actions under which the oversight board is challenging billions of dollars in debt, saying that payments were either preferential or fraudulent, essentially challenging the liens on that money. That two-year period has ended. So the courts could potentially find that the oversight board can't be a plaintiff on those cases, and it'll be too late to bring them again. For seeing this as a problem, they added the Unsecured Creditors Committee as a co-plaintiff on the cases. But that's unusual. You don't really see UCCs as co-plaintiffs on avoidance actions. And so their legitimacy, the UCC's legitimacy as plaintiffs, will almost certainly also be challenged. Well, that's a lot going on in Puerto Rico this week. Thank you to Simone and Greg for their coverage. All right, let's move on to Maria Monte covering Pacific Gas and Electric in California. What can you tell us about the, the settlement PG&E made with the municipalities this week? 
The utility agreed to pay a billion dollars in damages to 14 municipalities stemming from the wildfires in 2015, 2017, and 2018. The 2018 wildfire was the deadliest in the state's history, killing 85 and destroying nearly 14,000 homes in Northern California. The largest share of that settlement, will, or about $270 million, will go to Paradise, which was almost entirely destroyed after the 2018 fire. Now, those fires precipitated the PG&E bankruptcy, correct? Yes, but this settlement is only a fraction of the $30 billion in liabilities uh, PG&E faces from the wildfires. They filed in January because of those liabilities, but there's still a long road ahead. The settlement is only a fraction of what municipalities asked for. I heard an estimate suggesting they were seeking about $2.5 billion, um, which is about $0.40 cents on the dollar, give or take, and so it signals that the company is interested in pursuing settlements with creditors. But there are so many other creditors looking to be repaid, and this is just the first of what is likely to be many settlements going forward, and of course the bankruptcy judge will need to approve all of it. Now, what's the, the state's role in all of this? Well, right now there's legislation circulating to establish a fund to help utility companies pay damages related to wildfires. It's still getting cobbled together, and it wouldn't just help PG&E. It would help all utilities in the state uh, finance relief efforts for victims. The concern is that the fires are going to continue, and the state can't have all of its utilities filing for bankruptcy as a result of substantial liabilities. And so the fund would be established so they can better manage the cost of potential future wildfire damage, damages. Our DebtWire North America colleague, Kyle Yonker, actually broke this story a few weeks ago. And yesterday, Wednesday, it was confirmed the state will contribute uh, $500 million annually to that fund, and the utilities will be asked to make $5 billion in combined contributions. They also want to extend an existing surcharge from the Department of Water Resources currently set to sunset in 2022. So what is exactly is the Department of Water Resources charge? It was established in 2001 to help mitigate the effects of the state's energy crisis, and all utility customers pay this surcharge. They issued debt, some of which is outstanding, backed by this surcharge to help repay a $10 billion California general fund advance that helped set it up in the first place. Uh, looking forward, this fund will be different. The current charge is set to, again, the current charge is set to sunset when the associated debt outstanding matures in 22. It served its purpose, and the current legislation, AB 740, would extend the DWR charge for five years, and it would revisit extending it every five years. The rest of it remains in its infancy, and we'll all just have to stay tuned. And that's what we'll do, Maria. So thank you for your coverage on PG&E. And finally, let's move on to Caitlin Devin in Chicago, who is nursing a cold. But thank you for being a trooper. And tell us about an, uh, an important story you wrote about that uh, has been getting some traction this week. You're going to talk about the, um, the Better Housing Foundation in Chicago, and they're in trouble. What's the background of this story? Sure. So the Better Housing Foundation, it's actually based in Ohio, but um, they have sort of a, it's a nonprofit and they have sort of a complicated ownership. And they, through some affiliates, own dozens of buildings, um, which are affordable housing buildings in Chicago. And um, so the Better Housing Foundation, through the Illinois Finance Authority, issued nearly 85 million of bonds in 2016, 17, and 18. 
and that's for three Chicago-based uh, portfo- housing portfolios, um, which are called the Shoreline, the Icarus, and the Ernst. But um, so since the issuance of the bonds, their cash has dwindled. The, the city of Chicago has hit them with um, dozens of code violations. They have um, really high vacancy rates, and they've also lost um, vouchers from the Chicago Housing Authority, which has actually prohibited its residents from moving into the buildings. So that's all translated into a lack of cash. Um, they even lack enough money now to make their bond payments. Um, they relied on debt service reserves to make their December payments and then defaulted completely on their June 1 payment. So what's going on now in court and with the bondholders? So the foundation is in court with the city now over the um, over the over the code violations, and it looks like there's going to be receivers appointed to the buildings. In fact, just today, um, before this podcast was recorded, I looked on Emma Electronic Municipal Market Access, where you know disclosures um, posted, and there's a new disclosure notice saying that. Um, that it does look like receivers are going to be appointed to the buildings and also that those that receiver is going to have a senior lien. So that's going to be interesting um, in terms of how that interacts with the bondholders. So that's really fluid. There's, there's, um, there's lots of different dates in housing court um, because there's all these different code violations to go through. So that's going on with the city of Chicago and housing court and with the receivers, which bondholders are obviously going to have to pay attention to. And um, on the bondholder front, the trustee is UMB, and it's currently in negotiation with the Better Housing Foundation. Um, again, that's according to notices posted on AMA. Um, the trustees also hired McDermott, Will, and Emery to represent the bondholders in the case. The foundation's trying to find a new funding source for the rehab so that it can avoid foreclosure um, and get, you know, get the... Uh, the units occupied and the cash flowing again. So already um, talks with at least one funding source have fallen through that that was going to buy some of the buildings has fallen through. So they're really madly trying to find cash and um, and negotiating with bondholders. And and I think there's going to be a call. It looks like UMB said that there's going to be some calls. There's been a few calls, but there's going to be another call coming up. So that should be posted on Emma when that happens or when that's scheduled. So, Caitlin, let's say that I'm a bondholder. What should I be watching out for? Well, one option on the table that I'd be watching out for is Chapter 11. This is according to a source that said, um, you know, it's it's not um, inevitable, but it's an option and possibly even likely. With Chapter 11, you can either do prepackaged, like the bondholders and the receivers, you know, everybody will come to an agreement and head into court with that prepackaged agreement, or not. Either way, they could just head to um, the foundation, just could head into bankruptcy court on its own. Basically, they need cash. In one way, they're able to raise the cash is through a restructuring. So if it does end up in bankruptcy court, um, it'll be interesting to see if the bondholders are on board ahead of time or not, and what um, position any new financing takes if they have, you know, if they get some new financing, um, what kind of lien they get relative to the bondholders. And again, this the receiver having the senior lien is going to be interesting too because now that's, you know, that's another wrinkle in it. So the next step payment is due in December, but we're going to see some action before that. Um, 
you know, I think we're going to see some action pretty soon, um, at least with the result of, you know, talking with bondholders. And it, it, like I said, it's kind of, it's a pretty fluid situation, but I'd expect we're following it closely and um, hope to see some concrete measures pretty soon. Well, they need cash. Sounds like the line of the day. Thank you, Caitlin Debit. Thank you, Maria Monte. Thank you, Greg Clark. Thank you, Simone Barabo, and our producer, Andrew Constantino. Most importantly, thank you to our listeners who tune in week after week to the Muni Lowdown. Please log on to DebtWire.com for the latest on distressed municipal debt, and we'll hope to see you soon. Take care. Goodbye.